Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Each experience is similar. I'm pursued by the Borg. They want to assimilate me. I'm, I'm running from them, and then... And then each time I see a bird. A bird? Yes, a large black bird flying toward me, shrieking, attacking me. Hey, thank you so much for downloading the latest episode of the Positively Trek Book Club. My name is Dan Gunther, and with me as he is every week is the wonderful Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Joey. I- I'm sorry, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> it's your long hair. I thought you were Joey Lawrence from the 90s. My hair, yeah, it's getting longer and longer. And, you know, it's funny that you mention that because we are going to be discussing a Star Trek Voyager comic miniseries, which opens with a discussion of Janeway's hair. So that's that's kind of funny that you brought that up. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that, but that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, we will be discussing the four-part miniseries Star Trek Voyager Seven's Reckoning by Dave Baker with art by Angel Hernandez. So, yeah, I'm really, really excited to talk about this. This uh, We've had these issues coming out every month or so for the past little while, and now that all four of them are out, we're going to talk about them here on the Book Club Show. Yeah, and I've seen people online and certain Star Trek news sites also talking about the comics. So a lot of talk about this uh, four-issue miniseries. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of good things about it, too. And the funny thing is I was kind of waiting until we sat down to record this to read all of them in kind of one go to get, you know, kind of my thoughts out about them. I didn't read them as they came out. I just today, before recording this, read these for the first time. So how, how about yourself? How did you read these? What kind of Star Trek fan waits for to read their <laughs> Star Trek stuff? I mean, come on. Uh, yeah, I did the same thing. <laughs> because to your point, I mean, I, I kept thinking about reading these as they came out. I think the first one, I read a little bit of it. But yeah, I wanted to read it all at once. I just wanted to see what the experience would be like just having it as one big story all at once. We'll discuss each issue, uh, issue one, two, three, and four, and then kind of a wrap up a little bit at the end with our final thoughts and kind of what we thought of the series as a whole. So let's just jump right in. So we've got issue number one of this series, and each issue had these really interesting titles as well that I had to write down here. So issue number one is the end of the way of all things. And I don't know. I I really like these titles. I think they're, they, they fit really well with the stories we get. I just love doing the show with you because there's things I want to bring up and then you bring it up. And it's it's that point too. I really love the titles of these comics that really stood out to me too. The end of the way of all things. I just like, that's such a great title. And it doesn't disappoint when we get to the other ones. What's funny is I think if this was a title of a Voyager episode, it would be the longest title of any Voyager episode. They're usually one word, maybe two. Yeah, it would probably be way. (laughs) The end. 
or something like that. Yeah. Right. Well, with this issue, like I said, it starts out with a discussion of Janeway's hair, which I think is really funny because Janeway, of course, has an ever-changing hairstyle in Star Trek Voyager. And I've been listening to the podcast, The Delta Flyers, with Garrett Wong and Duncan McNeil, sorry, Robert Duncan McNeil. And it's funny, the hairstyle changes in Janeway that we see on the show, apparently the like fixation with her hair behind the scenes was so great. Like they were every episode trying a new hairstyle. I, I think the two of them were trying to name each of her hairstyles as they went along, but they kind of gave that up because... Uh, she's got so many. I, you know, I remember watching the show in real time as the episodes came out, and every time she had a hair change, I kept thinking of all these people gathering around behind the scenes. Just, you know, I don't know if it's quite right. Try it differently. Uh, we we need to soften her look. We need to tighten her look. We need to, you know, I I was just like, <laughs> when are they going to get to a point that they're just like, okay, everybody in agreement, this hairstyle is good. Great. We'll stick with this. I, I love this discussion at the beginning because it kind of, it's almost a little meta. It brings it into the Voyager universe where Janeway and Tuvok are discussing her hair and Janeway's not sure if this new style is really her. And Tuvok says, you know, mathematically, if we consider the angle of the parabolic curvatures created by your new aesthetic choices, I've arrived at an interesting conclusion. And Janeway says, which is? It compliments your cheekbones. <laughs> There's some really great Tuvok moments in this whole uh, miniseries, too. I really like him here. I was really picking up on the humor in these comics. Nice little uh, moments like that throughout. Some that I thought worked really well. Others I thought worked so-so. But mm. for the most part, I thought they worked well. Well, I'm only going to say one more thing about Janeway's hair because we don't want to fixate on it as much as the producers. But the one thing that's interesting is... If we take this dialogue to mean that she just changed her hair into this style, it puts it very specifically at a particular point in season four, which is between the episodes, Scientific Method and Year of Hell Part One. Year of Hell is the first time we see her with this hair. So I, I love how they've they've just really put exactly where in the series this miniseries takes place. Now, do you remember that or did you have to look that up? I remembered it, but then I went to the screen caps over on trekcore.com to confirm it, just in case. Good, good. <laughs> when I read this, I thought, I bet Dan's going to know exactly where this takes place because of the hair change, and you did not disappoint. Ah, uh, yeah. It's uh, one of the many things that's crammed into my brain against my will. I have no idea why I have that knowledge. but <laughs> I know, but thank you so much for having it. <laughs> <laughs> well you're very welcome well the main plot of the story really kicks off when we encounter this rather large seemingly derelict spacecraft uh, floating in space and an away team of chakotay tuvok seven ensign wildman and ensign price beam over to render assistance and first of all i thought price was a goner because this was i as far as i remember anybody somebody we've not seen or at least not seen a lot of on voyager if he was uh, actually a background character i'm not sure yeah he you would think he's the red shirt but uh he pulls through in this he does i'm really i'm really happy for him i'm really glad he pulls through <laughs> so yeah they beam over to this ship after they determine that it's sending a distress call basically and they 
beam over to render assistance. And they find out that the uh, creators of the ship, the inhabitants, are the Ordi Nadar, is the closest I can think of how to pronounce that. And they discover a bunch of laborers uh, of the ship in cryo-suspension. So, uh, yeah, what are you thinking so far? Like, right now, it kind of has the hallmarks of a lot of uh, Star Trek stories. Finding a derelict ship, people in cryogenic suspension. It's definitely kind of some of the themes and tropes we've seen before. That's funny, too, because when I was reading this, I thought that. I was like, yep, we have this typical Star It wasn't like, that's not a complaint, but I remember like, yep, we've seen that in Star Trek. Oh, that in Star yep, same kind of stuff. Okay, we're setting it up like other Star Trek things. But yeah, I did think that. But, you know, can I just mention something real quick that I didn't get right before this? And this goes back to the humor part. I Again, I thought there was really good humor in this. But there's this part where Chakotay is telling the away team, all right, Tuvok 7, you go this way, da-da-da. And we'll and Tuvok's like, we'll rendezvous here uh, in 30 minutes. And then Chakotay says, if you don't, I'll have to come looking for you, Tuvok. And he's like, yes, that is true. And then that prompts Seven to talk about Chakotay's attempt at humor. When things are dangerous, it distracts. And I was like, I didn't think that was humorous. <laughs> well, I didn't get the joke. We'll meet here in 30 minutes. Yeah, and if we don't, I'll have to come looking for you. That's supposed to be really funny to the point that it's distracting the mission. <laughs> it's kind of one of those things, yeah, where when I first read it, I didn't think, I was like, oh, it's, you know, he was kind of being serious. But with the kind of discussion afterwards, I kind of reframed it. And Chakotay has this kind of like goofy face he gets sometimes. Like, so I kind of reframed it in that thought where he's like, well, if you don't, I'll have to come looking for you too, Vok. Like just kind of joking slightly, but not, you know, it's, I think it's the tone in which he said it, which of course we can't <laughs> hear at all in a comic. So it did fall a little flat though, for sure. Yeah, I had to reread that four times, and I'm like, "Am I missing something? What's what's the funny ha ha? I don't get it." <laughs> yeah, but what you said makes sense. Yeah, it's not really really funny, but I could also see I could see the performance a little bit, like if Robert Beltran did that, and then how Tuvok and Seven could react that way if again it was actually filmed and not just written on a comic page. But yeah. I think it would be a better choice in that moment if we could see Chakotay's face when he says that. Because he says it from off panel, right? It's a right. speech bubble coming in from this side. So if he had like kind of a smirk on his face or something like, oh, okay. But it's a it's odd that we don't see that. So we can't make that leap. Well, of course, uh, we have, like I said, all of them in cryo sleep. And Ensign Wildman ends up tripping a, a sensor and we see people waking up. There's some interesting aspects to the culture of the aliens here, and we get hints as to how their culture is formed around the ideas of stories and that, that kind of thing. So this guy wakes up, he says, Outworlders, call to action. It has begun. This will lead to the climax. We will defeat the Dawnbringer with our greatest asset, hubris. So... Uh, some interesting hints as to what's to come. Yeah, I like the whole story aspect of their culture. Everything repeats. Every story is retold because history always repeats itself. Yeah, all the little elements of stories that are a part of this, I thought it was interesting and it felt a little bit meta because, of course, we're reading it as a story as well. For example, the leader is Septa, grand protagonist magistrate of the Ordina Dar. So, you know, they consider themselves 
players in a story, right? There's the protagonists, there's the climax, the call to action, the inciting incident gets called out at one point. So it's kind of like a, a story writer's or a script writer's dream to kind of play around with this culture. I thought that was pretty cool. And for those of you listening who live in the Delaware Valley around Philadelphia, I was thinking SEPTA as in Southeastern Pennsylvania Transit Authority. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> right. that's what they call the trains and transit system there, SEPTA. <laughs> that's funny. I'll keep that in mind. That's cool. So we see also that there are kind of two distinct parts uh, uh, sections of this species, right? So the laborers who we find out later are called the Vesh. They have four arms and they're kind of bigger and, and bulkier. And then the Khazar have only two arms and they're kind of the upper class, the leaders. They consider themselves the protagonists. Like I said, they only have two arms and they're kind of more lanky and a little bit more uh, suited to a life of comfort, let's say, by the looks of them. So we get the seeds of this kind of class struggle going on here. What did you think of this uh, at this point here? It reminded me of let that be your wait. What's that battlefield? The last let that, let that be your last battlefield. Let yeah. that be your last battlefield. I always mess that up. It reminded me of that of the whole, you know, white on one side, black on the other. And that's what happened at first here. I was like, okay, what is really the difference between these? Oh, well, one has two arms and hands and the other has four arms and hands. I mean, there's some other slight differences. Like you said, you know, one's bulkier than the other. But I thought it's kind of like that. It's that whole, just because we're slightly different from each other, one has to treat one differently as if they're superior than the other. This gets even a little more interesting as we go along. Absolutely. And we'll definitely get into that for sure. So the Khazar basically agree to let Seven help them repair their warp drive. And in the course of this, Seven gets to know this guy named Greeb, who tells her the story of the Dawnbringer. So the Dawnbringer is kind of this warrior uh, who fell from grace, was bound by an unjust rule, and he eventually united the many warring factions and led an uprising and remade the world. And we kind of get this impression that Greeb has this uh, kind of romantic notion of this uprising and stuff. When he says things like the story must develop for now. So, you know, there's, there's more to come with this guy for sure, but there's, there's definitely this kinship between him and seven that I enjoy seeing develop here. Yeah. And as stories do repeat, history repeats, he it's obvious at this point that he wants this kind of story to be retold again. He wants it to happen again, some kind of uprising Someone needs to be that Don bringer. But yeah, I do like the relationship between him and Seven. And this is interesting time too, because Seven is new to Voyager. At first I was thinking how it's odd that they're letting Seven be the only person to help them with their ship. But at the same time, they said that, you know, no others, the three, you know, the, the few that did arrive to the ship, no others are allowed. And she's the only one with the background that could really help with them in an engineering standpoint. Yeah, at first I was kind of wondering why the others weren't assisting as well. And then, yeah, that occurred to me that Seven's the one with the expertise. You know, Tuvok's a tactical officer. Chakotay's a freedom fighter slash first officer. It's probably, you know, not really suited to that. So it's kind of cool that Seven is a little bit on her own here, having to make her own decisions, uh, which, you know, we'll, we'll see definitely come into play in the later issues. 
Uh, and this one ends, like I said, with Grebe telling the story of the Dawnbringer. As you mentioned, he wants to see it kind of repeat. He says, as with all stories, this will happen again. But the only question that remains is, when? And that's when, that's where issue number one ends. You can tell right when that happens, you know, that's the last page. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> has that kind of ending to it. But the other thing I like is how the ship is, uh, I forget what they called it, but they say it's not a ship because it's about uh, storing their stories. It's not about them traveling. It's about preserving uh, all the stories and artifacts that they have. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think they called it a narrative. Yeah. That's it. A ship is something to transport things and people. Their vessel is a narrative, which again, yeah, feeding into that whole culture of the story. I, that's one of the things I think from this miniseries as a whole, I liked the most was the development of this culture is really fascinating. And I'd love to kind of explore it more. Yeah, we get a lot about them. So it would be great to see them again in another comic. Mm -hmm, definitely. Well, from there, we go on to issue number two. And with another terrific title here, this one is called Concrete and Iron Are No Match for Flesh and Bone. Very visceral imagery in these titles. I really like that one. I, th I think that that's a great rallying cry. Yeah. Can we have more of these titles and other things? I like these. Definitely. I, I love the like artistic titles. One thing I didn't mention with issue number one is uh, the very beginning, the very first page. And this is something that repeats itself in each issue. We see kind of a scene from the episode Scorpion Part 2 which has uh, Janeway and Tuvok on the floor of the cargo bay after Seven of Nine beams them uh, and some Borg's, Borg components over to Voyager from the cube that was about to be destroyed. We kind of get a repeat of this scene over and over again, a little bit more abstract each time. So issue one, issue two, issue three, issue four all start the same way, but it's kind of Seven's memory or, or imagining of it is a little distorted every time. Yeah, I'd like to talk more about this when we get to the last issue so we can compare the four. But this is one of the things I really did want to dig in with you because I was thinking, I couldn't remember for sure, but I assumed this was from the Scorpion from that episode. So it, it's an interesting choice to play with this because this is when Seven is first introduced to the Voyager crew. And yeah, we'll get more into that a little later. At the start of this next issue, I almost said episode, <laughs> at the start of this next issue, we see that rebellion is starting to take hold among the Vesh against the Khazar. They're kind of discussing this a little bit more, and we can see that these ideas are floating around here. And of course, Grebe is kind of the main guy surrounding this. So, you know, we're, we're kind of building towards what I would think would be a prime directive type story where, you know, you don't want to interfere with them. But of course, Seven is kind of in the thick of it here. She's made friends with this guy and is kind of in the middle of what's going on. Yeah, and they see these robed religious people who are telling stories. They're the leaders. They're religious leaders doing storytelling. And they're kind of having like a little funeral going on. And each body represents part of the story. The, the big revelation that pushes things along is when Seven reveals 
what they found when they were looking at how the cryo units were set up for the lower ranked people versus the higher ranked people. And it looked like they were kind of acting as backup systems to make sure that the Khazar's biopods didn't malfunction. The way Grieb interprets it here is he says she was trying to use us as batteries to survive long enough to make it back to the home world. And that's what really starts people talking about rebellion here. Yeah, their batteries are certain energy from them, but they're exposable. You know, you know that when they get to the home world that they may not have a life because they're just treated as almost like slaves. And there's some dissent among the Vesh about the idea of rebellion and stuff. So some of them think that Grebe is suited to lead them in this rebellion, but others think that he's dangerous and his ideas are dangerous and they shouldn't uh, follow them. You know, some believe he's the Dawnbringer and some believe that he isn't. So that's kind of interesting as well. Yeah, he definitely believes he's the Dawnbringer. And I guess just because he feels like if he repeats the story, he becomes the character. Right, exactly. You inhabit that role. But we do also learn, of course, that according to the legend, the Dawnbringer is supposed to be a Khazar, the upper class people, not a Vesh, one of the lower class people, which is kind of a bit of a wrench in the works here. Now, there's also a scene here with Seven and, and Harry. It really doesn't develop later. I don't really... I'm not sure what the purpose of the scene is. Well, I was wondering that too. And it fits in really well with Harry Kim and Seven of Nine's interactions at this point in the Voyager television show. But yeah, Kim comes into the cargo bay to talk to Seven to see like, hey, if you need to talk, I'm here. You can let me know. She says basically, nope, I don't need to, but I'll keep it in mind for the future. Thank you, Ensign. And he leaves. And then reports to Tuvok, and apparently he was spying on Seven, basically, for Tuvok. Tuvok thinking that maybe Seven of Nine would open up to him to say what's going on on the ship, what's bothering her, and that kind of thing. So I, I thought that was an interesting use of the characters here. Yeah, I guess I was just expecting there to be something more with Harry, but it makes sense. I mean, that was he was just sent on this mission to kind of figure out what's going on with Seven, because in the first issue... We actually have this just one brief panel that shows Harry and Seven eating together. And he's asking, are you okay? You're not acting yourself. You're not, you're just staring at your food. And it's setting up the how they're concerned with Seven. She's not acting how she typically does. Because apparently we find out her efficiency has been falling off. Her report about what's happening on the ship is incomplete and that kind of thing. So Tuvok was using Harry to kind of find out what was going on with her that didn't work so they apparently had her go to sickbay to get a checkup because not all is right with seven apparently yeah she's working long hours she's not really communicating she's very tired she's not regenerating like she should i'm not regenerating sometimes like i should so i know <laughs> i'm not myself if i don't regenerate i've been having that issue lately too i'm i'm going to i'll definitely cop to that for sure but we do get this scene of course with seven reporting to Janeway and Janeway kind of directly confronting Seven about what's been going on. And, and Seven pushes back. Am I not performing my duties to an acceptable standard? You know, says, look at the results. The warp drive is getting fixed. It's on schedule. And, and I said, well, okay, there's something else going on, but okay, we'll trust you for now. And there seems to be some concern that she's developing an attachment, as Chakotay says here. So 
they're they're worried about seven and and that she's getting too personally involved in what's going on here. And again, this is early in their involvement with seven. I mean, this is one of the first times they're really truly testing seven to do something on her own. They can't be there with her. They can't help her. So they're really relying on her and they're really trying to see, you know, is she up to this? Is she going to follow through, you know, take what she's learned as she's been with us. And now that she's kind of holding back on some things and acting funny, maybe they're thinking, is it too much too soon? Is she ready for this? So yeah, there's a lot to, to deal with there. And you know, seven could be looking at Janeway going, I'm fine. What about you? Your hair keeps changing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But yeah, like you say, seven of nine is a really unknown quantity at this time. And they're not sure how she'll be on her own kind of thing. So there's understandable worry for sure. To me, I think one of the most interesting parts of this issue happens when Seven returns to the ship and she's brought before Septa. And we get some interesting insights into the relationship between the Vesh and the Kazar. And apparently the Vesh give off a pheromone that the Khazar use to extend their own lifespans. This is a really interesting scene, and I, I think it kind of explains a lot of what's going on here. I want to hang out with these people because if they have pheromones that make me live a long time and not age, I mean, that's pretty awesome. But yeah, this is something different. I don't think we've ever seen anything like this where one species extends the life of another species through their pheromones. Mm-hmm. I don't think we've ever seen that in, Star- in any Star Trek that I've seen or, or read. But it, it's interesting how they're keeping them around, and that's one of the main reasons why they're doing it. And not only that, it's it's apparently a pheromone they give off when they're stressed. So they have to keep them working hard and laboring, which is, <laughs> you know, like that's pretty awful, really, if you think about that relationship there. Yeah, which means also then when they do get to their home world, they do still need them if they want to continue to live long lives. So they'll always be slaves to them. So Septa tries to convince Seven to tell Grebe that, you know, his rebellion is not good. It's a story that ends only in pain, you know, convince him not to do this. So Seven goes back to Grebe and says, I have something to tell you. Septa, she knows you're preparing an uprising. And we see Grebe and he says, good. And that's how issue number two ends. See, these issues always end with the last page being a full panel with one line mm-hmm. with not one line, one word. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm flipping and I'm like, Oh, this is totally going to be the last page here. Like it just, yeah, it has that feel to it. So yeah, I'm, I'm really digging this. Also the artwork, we're going to talk more in depth about this later, but the artwork on these like final pages is always really good. Yeah. There's a lot of detail in it too. All right, well, let's move on to issue number three then. So issue number three is called Symphony for the Damned. So another terrific title here. And again, starting with that same scene from Scorpion, this time we see the imagery of the raven, which we know is very uh, meaningful for Seven of Nine, of course. The ship that she was assimilated by the Borgon was the raven that her parents took her to the Delta Quadrant in. And we saw in the episode, the raven, the kind of imagery of that. And then that extends to the beautiful splash page, the double page featuring Voyager, 
in the previous two issues, it was flying among the stars, but now we see it surrounded by ravens. Yeah. Do you think these are dreams of sevens? I think so. Yeah. Now that episode, The Raven, where did that take place in relation to this? Was it before this or after? I want to say it was about four or five episodes before this. Yeah. Okay. So it makes sense that she could still be having these dreams with ravens. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the main part of the issue begins basically with the rebellion having begun, of course, being led by Greeb, and he's rallying the troops. You know, brothers and sisters, now is our time. We must take our stories to the final chapter. I, I just love, I would love to study a culture that used story like this. I love that. I've read some things that our culture is changing in the way we learn things and how we educate. I mean, we're so used to being taught in school, which we still do, of course, and through textbooks, that sort of thing. But now it's becoming more that we're learning things through stories, meaning through media, through movie, through TV shows, so on and so forth. And I've heard that we'll continue to learn more and more about history through stories, not from a textbook so much, but from our own media. Now, that's scary because it's not always correct, but find me the truth in that. But I think we're, as a society, leaning more and more towards this. Oh, now I want to watch Darmok again. Ugh. Oh, yes. Hey, that I didn't even think about that, but that definitely relates to this. Well, the, the story that's ongoing here, of course, is the story of the Dawnbringer and Grieve casting himself in that role here, leading his, his troops. And we also see, interestingly enough, Seven of Nine is kind of taking part in this as well. And she's got herself a big phaser rifle from Voyager. I don't know how she talked them into, you know, just taking that and with her over to the ship, I guess. But uh, she seems to be kind of taking part in this rebellion, which I I don't know. I was a little surprised that she seemed to be fighting alongside Grebe and his men here so quickly. Yeah. And I think it's because at this point, Seven is still trying to find herself and where she fits in. So being with these people and them having a rebellion, I think she relates to them and she's so used to being part of one whole and not two different societies. And I think she wants to see them unite and become one because that's how the Borg is. Well, the uh, the fighting kind of continues, but it ends up being stopped. Greeb surrenders. He's offered to have his part in the narrative forgotten. We'll forget. We'll forget about this. You know, just surrender. And, and he says, basically, I need to realize my part in the ens- ensemble. I am Grebe and I surrender. And he kind of gives up here. But the rest of the Vesh seem to kind of rise up, proclaiming we are all the Dawnbringer and continue the rebellion here. Yeah, it's it's as if Grebe is like, come on, everybody, let's go do this. And then he backs up. But he's already sparked the fire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's hard to pull that back. Yeah. And he's, he's kind of having regret here. He's saying, you know, it's all his fault. He sh- maybe shouldn't have done this. He got carried away. Uh, he's kind of losing his, I don't want to say nerve here, but he's kind of lost that zeal that he had for this until he and Seven find their way into what he calls the Deshas, this place where holy antiquities are housed. And the, uh, this one particular artifact, this statue is called the Wellspringer's Omen. And it's a depiction of the Dawnbringer. As we expect, he's, uh, he's one of the two armed guys. He's, 
this big huge statue and it looks like there's kind of this wall of skulls yeah it's like this wall of skulls and the pedestal he's on is on a pedestal of skulls too yeah it's definitely really stark imagery and this is apparently how they identify who the dawnbringer is is through the sculpture but seven detects some anomalous readings and discovers this kind of opening into this secret compartment the second chamber and there's another sculpture in there it's it's much smaller but it is a depiction of the Dawnbringer, but in this case, it's a Vesh, one of the forearmed guys, which kind of reignites Grebe's zealotry here and reignites his passion about changing this story, basically. Because, yeah, now there's two sculptures, so which is the true one? But Grebe is sure of himself that this is the true one, that his people were the dawn bringer that the dawn bringer was a vesh and it the because the statue was smaller it makes it feel like it probably is more real instead of this big monument you know because you would expect it to be a monument but if it was a simpler time the statue probably would have been smaller yeah i kind of like that that makes a lot of sense i, I like that imagery i was wondering if this was an indication that the dawn bringer was a vesh but maybe even before that was a Khazar and before that was a Vesh. Like, is this just a, a kind of rotating society where one group's on top and then the other and then the other and then the other over and over again, maybe? It could be, because if Grebe would have succeeded, he would be the new Dawnbringer. So there could be a, that cycle. And as they say, stories are always being retold. So it's certainly possible that the Dawnbringer has been on both sides. Because mm-hmm. we did learn, if Septa is telling the truth, that the they used to be the oppressed ones and it was the Vesh that were on top. So, yeah. yeah, I could see this being like a continual cycle of each side coming to power. And Well, and also the problem with stories is over generations, the stories start to reform. It's It's actually like that game of telephone, you know? And mm-hmm. so the stories may have changed. So even the stories that we're learning in here may be totally off. There may have never been a real Dawnbringer. Yeah, I, this could just be like a story in the truest sense of that word where, yeah, maybe it's just a piece of literature that their society has now become based on or something. Their society could all be built on misunderstandings of stories. That's an interesting thought for sure. Well, this story, of course holds such a special central place in their society and this kind of is going to send shockwaves through it so as as grebe says i have uncovered a simple truth one that is so insidious it will rock you to your core and he shows everybody the sculpture he shows it to the vesh proclaiming that they have all been lied to you know saying we have been lied to and then at that moment a power relay explodes Uh, this overload happens and yeah and that's the last page full panel page no word though this time just a big boom yeah just a big explosion and we see the interesting piece of art we see seven of nine flying off in the upper left we see grebe being blown back in the middle right in the foreground the little statue flying away too it's really cool well, there we go. So we're going into the home stretch now with issue number four. And this issue is called The Endless Echo of Hate. So, uh, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that opening bit with the dream of Seven and, and the now the very dominant image of the Raven. Okay, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it, but I'm trying to figure out what this is really telling us. 
because if you go to issue one, we do see seven as a Borg. And she says in it, lower your weapons. In the next one, she says, resistance is futile. Then she says, we will add your biological distinctiveness to seven, our own, our own. And in this one, she's a raven. Well, there's a big raven, but she's very small with no words being said. And just let me back up, though. The medical officer in the first one talks about Janeway and Tuvok having some minor injuries, but they'll be fine. In the second issue, oh, they have serious injuries, but they should recover. And the third issue, they are very serious and need to get to med bay. And the fourth, it's just Dakota there saying, well, good. We have, we just have to... And we see the raven. Yeah. And the doctor and all of the other characters have turned into a, a flock of ravens behind Chakotay, I guess. Yeah. Because Chakotay says, well, and the raven screeches back and Chakotay says, good. We just have to. <laughs> so he understands what he's saying, but we can't, we don't understand. Right. And everything seems to evolve more and more to the raven and also to the analysis of Janeway and Tuvok getting more and more serious in their injuries. Mm-hmm. So what is this trying to tell us? I'm not sure. And, and I feel I'm kind of frustrated that I don't know because yeah, even the next big splash page, we had Voyager surrounded by Ravens before, but now Voyager itself is just a huge Raven surrounded by a bunch of smaller ones. What is the significance of the Raven that we got from that episode, the Raven? Wasn't it that it was more about Seven's freedom? But I thought that the Raven also signified not just the ship, but then feeling freedom from the Borg, like relating back to her past. So I'm wondering if this is saying when they're looking at Janeway and Tuvok and it's becoming more and more serious Maybe it's because the situation in the story becomes more and more serious for Seven. Mm -hmm. And then maybe with the Ravens, it's just showing that she's evolving. And in her dreams, she's seeing more and more Ravens because she's becoming more herself, being disconnected more and more from the Borg and finding more of herself through this experience. So more freedom. I like that. That's really good. I'm just making BS as we go along, but that's where I'm thinking this might be going. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That that That's an interesting thought. I think that's really cool. So the Voyager that we see is the Voyager, but then we see the Ravens around the Voyager, which is space. And now we see Voyager as a big Raven. So therefore she's equating the ship now to being a big Raven, which means she feels more freedom aboard the ship. What's interesting is, of course, when the when the actual story of the comic starts, we see basically Seven coming out of that dream and the raven imagery is still all there as she's kind of waking up in sickbay being treated by the doctor. So I, I love that imagery. Well, if I'm wrong, I sure want to hear from the author. Yeah, I'd love to talk to the author too and, and kind of get some interesting insights into what's going on here. Because, yeah, there's some really cool, obviously really stark, interesting imagery here. And uh, yeah, like I said, Seven of Nines waking up in sick bay. The way Janeway talked to and kind of treated the Doctor felt like an earlier season version of the Doctor than at this time. Was that just me or did you get that as well? I Well, when they shut him off, when they wanted him gone, it made me think that. And they didn't even tell him to leave. She just kind of gave him a hint to leave. And he's mm-hmm. like, oh, deactivate emergency medical hologram. And he's gone. And I don't think in this season she would have done that to him. Yeah, it felt like an earlier 
iteration almost. Yeah. But then again, where's he going to go? If she wants some privacy, I don't know. That's true. In this scene, Seven kind of implores Janeway to offer asylum to the Vesh. So, you know, this situation's come to a head on their ship. There's this rebellion ongoing. And Seven says, we could take the Vesh in. We could give them asylum on Voyager. But Janeway, of course, is pretty reticent to that plan. Yeah, this is where it comes in with Prime Directive talk, you know, about trying to explain to Seven what the Prime Directive is. And it's not always something that you think is going to be fair all the time and that not to get involved, you know. And I mean, really, everyone is telling her that from Septa to Janeway, and that is just do your job. Don't get involved. So interestingly, Septa wants Seven of Nine to come back to the ship to help complete the warp drive repairs. And Janeway says, that's what you're going to do. That's all you're going to do. You can't become involved. You can't do anything else. You will do your job and that will be the end of it. Seven complies, basically. She goes back to the ship and discovers that, and I'm not sure, Make, I think is the guy's name. This other Vesh has made a deal with Septa uh, that, you know, they're going to stop the rebellion and they're just going to go back into cryo sleep when the repairs are done. And this will all get sorted out on the home world when they get there kind of thing. Or so he thinks. <laughs> or so he thinks exactly. So seven finishes the repairs of the warp drive. And then Septa immediately after it comes all online says that Grebe will be put on trial, which of course was not part of the agreement. And I, I got Lando vibes here. It's like this deal's getting worse all the time. I mean, I was kind of surprised, but not surprised, you know, because you can't really trust Septa, you know, Septa says, oh, we'll deal with this when we get to the home world. And then, no, you know what? We're going to do a trial now. That was not part of the agreement. Yeah. But that just shows how little they think of these people, of the Vesh. Exactly. And and then we, we get to the trial itself. And this was the most like frustrating thing as well, because they say to him, Grebe, what do you say in your defense? And he starts to speak and the other guy basically says, I must insist we not hear any more of the false stories that Grebe has been so prone to spreading. His tongue is not trustworthy. It could inflict more damage. And Septa says, yeah, that's a good call. Guilty. Sentence is death. <laughs> like that's the whole trial. I was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> you know, this issue also made me think of what's been going on with politics in the u.s with conspiracy theories and such Mm -hmm. and they're throwing things at him like you know all these are just conspiracies none of this is true it's fake news it's fake news right and i'm just like you know without getting into politics or even what i believe or anything i'm just talking matter of fact here but you know there's some conspiracies out there sometimes in these conspiracy theories you kind of have to stop and think well could it be true (laughs) you know and i guess that's what i'm saying is sometimes i feel like we never really know the answers it's always filtered you know what is the true answer to things and even what grieb understands which looks to be true may not be true based on what we were talking about earlier where stories have been changed over time and what we think is real isn't real i mean i've gotten to a point in my life now that i just i don't know what truth is half the time because there's times i believe something to be true and then find out it isn't i I think where that gets really dangerous is when you get people preying on that 
uncertainty, right? Which is kind of what Septa's doing here, because I think Septa knows more than she's letting on, you know, and is preying yeah. on that idea. And and you get people out there that are like, they'll, they'll prey on that, that uncertainty that you're talking about where, well, they're all lying to us. They're always lying to us. You don't know what's true. And then, you know, they start peddling their conspiracy theories that, you know, because they've introduced this uncertainty into this narrative, well, now I can get you to believe this narrative. I can manipulate you into believing that. And it all becomes a, a huge mess like that. So yeah, I absolutely see those parallels there for sure. That's a, definitely a good point. I've worked with people uh, that are not my company anymore, but they used to always say perception is reality. And I used to always hate that. And every time they'd say that, I'd say, yes, but it's not truth. And they're like, it doesn't matter. and i always hated that because there was like a guy there that was doing something online he would come in in the mornings and he would set up his tweets because he would read the news he would he'd show up like an hour to the office before everybody else got there and he would read the news and then tweet about it but he didn't want like all these tweets going on at once he would he had this system he used that timed his tweets he used some service that he you know this goes out later too and people who worked there knew that these tweets were going out throughout the day and they thought he wasn't working and then he explained he goes oh no no no, no. when i'm in here at 7:30 in the morning before you guys come in i do this and, and i just time it so that everybody's being bombarded by my tweets that follow me they're scattered throughout the day and they're like it doesn't matter what we think perception is reality the re- and therefore you're doing you're not working and you're tweeting all day I hate that because it's not true, though. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I remember kind of similarly going way, way, way back to when I was in high school. I worked construction during the summers. At one point, I was uh, having to basically strip nails and, and clean up a bunch of scrap wood in this kind of wood yard area. You know, I kind of quickly discovered that if I if I got down on kind of my knees in one area and surrounded myself by a bunch of them I could you know strip them out and toss them over here and get it done really really fast and the yard foreman came and started yelling at me for sitting down and getting down on the ground while doing this instead of standing up and looking like I was working I said well I'm doing this and it's a lot easier to do it this way I can do it a lot faster and it doesn't matter if someone drives by and sees you there it's going to look like you're sitting around doing nothing so stand up and do it this way. And it was just like, you know, I'm, I'm a 16 year old kid going like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, but okay. Right. So yeah, it's perception is reality. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, just think about you're being more efficient. So they told you to be less efficient, less efficient because it would look better if you're standing. Yeah, exactly. I've never forgotten that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, like we said, this this trial goes really quickly and, you know, it's a Star Trek story. So I'm kind of expecting that he'll be saved at the last minute or something. You know what I mean? Like, I'm kind of expecting this is going to turn out differently. But no, the execution of Grebe goes ahead fairly quickly. It's it's pretty brutal. He's stabbed from behind, basically. But as he's, as this is happening, he's giving his last words and he says, the stories we tell ourselves matter. We are all the dawn bringer. Liberation is paramount. And those are his last words as he's killed. His death kind of seems to have galvanized the rest of the Vesh as they all repeat, we are all the dawn bringer. We don't see exactly how it will all turn out here, but it does not look likely they will go quietly into cryosleep, I think, 
which is what Septa wants here. I don't know. What do you, how do you interpret what happens on the ship afterwards? Well, to your point, we really don't know what happens. I mean, yeah, they're not peacefully or quietly going to go into stasis, but uh, I mean, maybe, I mean, if they start losing, they may back down and they may become slave, may become slaves again and, and just back down from it. We saw it earlier in that other issue. They started an uprising and then back down. Or we saw Greeb do that. So maybe they will too. Or they actually fight and win. Or I mean, who knows? It can go in any direction. But uh, that's the problem with getting involved with these societies and in infusing your own ethics, thoughts, and morals into it because you're not part of it and then you leave in the middle mm-hmm. of it. So you've stirred a hornet's nest and then you've left and they're on their own now. And that's kind of the the groundwork for the scene we get next in Janeway's ready room where she's she's talking to Seven about the importance of the prime directive and non-interference, exactly like you're saying, saying it's a valuable lesson. We can't impose our beliefs on another society. You know, it's not our job to do that. Seven seems to kind of take it to heart and and really kind of understand what she's trying to say. And she expresses regret uh, for her part in Grebe's death specifically and the failed rebellion. And it's kind of a really somber note for this to end on, for sure. Well, and she wanted Janeway earlier to bring all the Vesh over, give them asylum. And she's like, we can't accommodate all these people. And she's like, you brought me over from the Borg, but you're one individual, Janeway tells her. And then later in this scene, or later in this issue, she then pleads, just bring Grebe over. We could save him, you know? And she's she's pleading with Septa, to allow her to take them. And no, they're not going to allow that. You know, they, they want to deal with Grebe on their own and on their own terms. You know, I got to think, what is Seven thinking now at this point? She's on the ship that seems to go around the galaxy helping other cultures. But yet when she's there trying to help, Janeway's saying, pull back. And it is trying to find that fine line of when do you help and when you don't, and when do you not help? And then how much do you help? Where, where is that line? And Janeway has an interesting point earlier in the story, too, where she says, you know, this this isn't just one ship. For all we know, this is their entire species that's left. Like, this could be the entire culture, and it's not our place to kind of steer an entire culture in a particular direction. And it's not saying that Seven's right or wrong. It's basically like we're not in a position to know what's right or wrong or what our part in this in their story is and it's interesting because we do know that outsiders outworlders do play a part in the story and i'm wondering if this was just how that part of the story went did they fulfill their role here like when they first awaken that first person you know they know that you know oh outworlders okay this is where the next chapter begins did it all work out the way it was supposed to whatever that means or did it not i don't know yeah i don't know either yeah who knows and then seven i mean she's got to look at janeway and say okay you don't want me to have any influence on their culture but aren't you trying to have influence over the borg culture trying to destroy them i mean you're not looking to liberate and let the borg be their own well it ends again on one of those full page pieces of art seven is saying i wish i'd never become involved i'm responsible for Grieve's death of all of their deaths. This is all my fault. Janeway says, Seven, it sounds like you're experiencing regret. 
that's very and then the final page full shot of Janeway and Seven looking out the window human and that's where we end the uh the mini series on so yeah what did you think of the story overall well just that last page that you mentioned it seems to be a compliment that Janeway's trying to give to Seven that she's human I mean of course she was born human but at the same time, she was Borg for most of her life. And Jane was complimenting her on not being in the culture that she was in, that she tore away. Yet, mm-hmm. don't get involved in other cultures, you know. Anyway, that's a whole no- that can be a whole other issue or something sometime between these two. But I think because of those discussions that we were having, this is very much a Star Trek type of story. Because of mm-hmm. these things that we were discussing about, you know, perception and politics and slavery and cultures and stories and being told and how to communicate, uh, all these little things that we've touched on. So I thought this was a really good issue. Again, I love or issues of the story because I love how when the comics take the time to tell the story over several issues, I feel like it plays so much better than when they try to condense it all into one. It seems more rushed and you don't get the character development. And to your point earlier, I think when we were going into issue two, you said episode. Oh, I called it episode. We do that often when we read these comics because they can feel like episodes. And this does feel like a a seven to nine episode. So this is a great character development for seven. So I really enjoyed it. So I'm going to give this four big Ravens out of five. I think it's definitely deserving of a really strong rating. I really enjoyed this story. And I felt like the pace was very nice and deliberate. Like it took its time kind of unfolding the story. One of my big things with comics is that the story feels very rushed, especially if it's like a one shot or something like that. But yeah, over the course of these four issues, we really get the chance to dive deep into this culture and this story of seven at this very particular point in her development and in Voyager as a whole. So I think everything really comes together really well here. The artwork, I think, was gorgeous. I'm comparing it to the other miniseries we recently covered, The Deep Space Nine, Too Long a Sacrifice. I really liked the artwork in that as well, but it was very abstract in a lot of places. This artwork is a completely different style. It's very much, I mean, with the exception, of course, of the the dreams with the ravens and that kind of thing. But everything in the real world is very much like what you see is what you get. It's very much they're trying for a realism look here. And I think it comes across really well. There's not one likeness in the issue in any of the issues that I had a problem with. Everybody looked good. The colors were crisp. Everything was really easy to kind of see and and figure out. I loved it. Overall, wonderful series. Really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm going to give it four repaired warp cores out of five, I guess. Yeah, very, very good. Very enjoyable story. Yeah, and it's so great to have a story that's on Voyager with Seven because recently we've had Seven on Star Trek Picard, but going back to see the seven of the early adventures of her on Voyager is a lot of fun too. And at least addressing Janeway's hair transformation is important too. Absolutely. Well, I guess, uh, yeah, all that's left is to say to everyone out there, if you haven't picked up these issues, you definitely should. There's an omnibus edition of it coming out uh, in a few weeks. I'm not sure the exact date. I'd have to double check that, but 
Uh, it's coming out in, in, in a while. If you want to read it that way, definitely worth checking out. And then I guess to ask you, Bruce, uh, what do you think we should do for our next book club episode? Because I think you had an interesting idea that uh, you should definitely present to everyone. I did. I, this is not one that has been on my list. I've read this book before, but for some reason I was just thinking about it the other day. And it's Star Trek Online, The Needs of the Many. And you don't have to play Star Trek Online to understand this book. Uh, it's a standalone book. I remember at the time when I read it, I thought it was pretty interesting. And the fact that we have this continuity in the 24th century novels that differs from Picard, and then we have the online, which differs a little. This book, if I remember correctly, kind of helps explain some of that stuff. So it's written by Michael A. Martin, but it's also written by Jake Sisko. So hmm. that should give you a little hint of where this is going. Interesting. I, I'm excited. I think I bought this one when it first came out and I never got around to reading it. So I know it's on my shelf somewhere. I'm going to have to dig that out and give it a read. I'm excited for this. It's one, yeah, like I said, I've just never gotten around to it. So I'm looking forward to it. The other thing that I just want to say that Star Trek magazine years ago used to have fiction in their magazines. And a lot of it was based on Star Trek online. And if anybody's listening in the publishing industry that can do this, please republish those stories in some big omnibus or some book or something. Cause I would love to have a collection of those. That would be pretty cool. Well, when you're not looking for old Star Trek online stories from Star Trek magazine, where can people find you online? I'm on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex and I'm on Facebook. You can find me just as Bruce Gibson. You can also find me on Instagram as Admiral Rex. And I am coming up on an upcoming episode of the Star Wars Report. I haven't been on recently, but I do occasionally show up there. I'm also going to be on a recent episode of Literary Treks, where we're talking about Star Trek synthesis from the Titan novels. And I think that's about it. So, Dan, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats, K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on youtube.com slash Productions, talking mostly about Star Trek, but I've been talking about other stuff, most recently The Expanse, which uh, I'm really enjoying, a really great series. And you can find me on Instagram, Kurtrats47. You can find the show on Twitter at Positively Trek, and on our Facebook listeners group, the Positively Trek discussion group on Facebook. Just search for Positively Trek. We'll let you right in. Check us out on patreon.com slash positively trek and email us positively trek at gmail.com. And in one of those various ways, you'll definitely get a hold of us. So thank you all so much for listening this week. We'll see you next week with a flagship show and in two weeks with our next book club episode. Until then, stay positive. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.